How are you doing? Good morning to you. Good morning. It's great to be in the house of the Lord with you today. And uh, I'm so excited to be here. I think that God has a word for us that's important for our church and our uh, just the trajectory of where we're headed. Uh, we're wrapping up our series in Nehemiah today. Uh, brick by brick. I just feel throughout this series that it's been prophetic in a, in a way that God's been stirring something, planting seeds in our hearts as a congregation and as individuals. And so I'm excited about what God has for us today. You know the saying says, time flies when you're having fun. You've heard that, right? Yeah, we must be having a lot of fun, aren't we? Right? Because time is flying. I think I've heard that statement like so many times, like some form of this. Uh, how many of you heard, had, had a conversation recently that said something like this, like, I can't believe it's been that long, right? How, how many of you had that conversation, right? Uh, or, or maybe it feels like just yesterday, right? For, for those of you that have kids, you're like, oh, the kids are growing up so fast, right? It's time is flying, and so that must mean that we're having a lot of fun, right? Uh, how can relate to that? Well, uh, a few years ago, uh, I turned 40. So I'm in my early 40s. Yet. I don't know when mid-40s starts. I'm not there yet. I'm in the early part uh, of my 40s. And someone said, when you're in your 40s, here's a little tip for you. And I said, okay, like, I'll take all the tips I can get. They said, whenever, whenever you're trying to think back to like, how long ago was that, always add five years. Because then you'll be closer to the, like, if you're like, oh, that must have been about five years. No, it was 10, right? So in your 40s, add five years. I don't know if there's like a ratio. I don't know if it's like 10 years in your 50s or 30 years in your 70s. I don't know if there's a ratio. But add five and you'll be closer to the truth because uh, time is flying by. And it's not just time, but it's also the rate of change that's accelerating. How many know that, that change, it always seems to be accelerating, right? How, how many remember when you used to get up off your couch to change the television channel? Anyone remember that, right? Right? And then for, well, for most of us, we've been, you know, we've been reclining in our Barca lounger. <laughs> I don't even, where did that word come from? Barca lounger, a lazy boy, you know, reclining chair, Sometimes I tell you, I told you when I first met you that sometimes I have old man tendencies that just come out of me. Words like Barca lounger is one of them. Sitting in my Barca lounger in my slacks, I don't know. So, <laughs> by the way, we, we have the remote control, right? Uh, someone told me the other day, and, and I've known this for a little while, like I, I, sometimes at night I turn my TV off through my Google Home Assistant, you know? Instead of like finding the remote, I said, hey Google, turn off the TV, and it does it for me. Someone told me I could change channels doing that too. I, I haven't learned how to do that yet. But uh, you know, the rate of change. Remember life before cell phones? My wife was reminiscing the other day, and, and uh, she used to go to the mall, and she'd call her parents to pick her up, and you'd have to use the pay phone, right? But instead of like, you know, that, oh, it's it an expensive call at a quarter, right? And, and so she would call collect, call collect, right? And then it would say, like, you know, you know, who's calling? And she would say, mom, come to the mall and pick me up, right? And like, you would just, because you didn't want to pay for using the pay phone, like a quarter for the pay phone, Right? Uh, remember when you used to get your answering machine messages when you'd get home, right? You would go grocery shopping, you'd go out for hiking for the day, and you could care less that people could get a hold of you, right? Like, you're like, oh, I'll get it when I get home, right? Now it's like, ding, and you're like, oh, I need to respond to this, right? I'm in the shopping and in the store, like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm responding to this message, right? It's the rate of change. Time flies and change is inevitable. We've seen a lot of progress in the last 100 years. 
You know, when we, when we think about the rate of change accelerating, just think of some of our medical advancements. Like, how many of you have ever taken a day off because you had the flu? Anyone? Right? Flu is like, it's, it's kind of a, a blessing in a way. You get the day off, you get to sit at home and drink your soup and watch Prices Right on TV or whatever you do on a, on a flu day. But like less than 100 years ago, like flu was killing more people than anything else, right? Now, just think about this. In, in World War I, 18 million, or 16 million lives were lost in World War I. That is a tragedy. But in 1918, uh, 50 million people died of the flu. But we don't even think about that anymore because we just get our flu shots or, or we don't get our flu shots, right? So the flu is just like, I'm going to miss a couple of days from work because we've ad- advanced medically. Uh, in 1967, they had their first heart transplant. Imagine that, being able to transplant someone's heart into someone else's body. Well, in 2010, they did the first complete face transplant. Imagine the medical technology that we can have in advance to be able to do these things. Uh, technological advancements, I already talked about it, but in 1910, we were thinking about these amazing technolo- technological breakthroughs. Like in 1910, GE invented the home toaster, right? Technological breakthrough. You can have toast in your kitchen every morning, right? Like that's like the most basic appliance in our kitchen, I think, right? Who had toast this morning, right? No one was marveling. You're like, mine has four slots, ooh, right? Like that's not very uh, like advanced. Well, we progressed 1917. Uh, a guy named Gideon Sunback, he received a patent for uh, an amazing thing called the separable fastener. The patent was for the separable fastener, uh, which we know today as the zipper. Zipper was technological breakthrough. You know what I downloaded yesterday? I downloaded this app called uh, Picture This. You know where we're at with technology today? I can just point my camera at a plant and it will tell me what kind of plant it is because it has AI and machine learning and, and the advancement from like the toaster to like AI and advanced learning. It blows my mind. Think about communication. 1918, our communication was just like the advancement, they took leaps and bounds. It was the delivery of mail via flight, airmail. 1980, first person, you know what would revolutionize communication? If we could like airmail our, our, our envelopes, that would be amazing. So in 1918, they had their first route between New York and Washington, D.C. It didn't go so good, the first route. Uh, the pilot actually got lost in the clouds and ended up crashing uh, the very first uh, air route, only 25 miles from the airport. But in 2022, they say that 333 billion emails will be sent and 560 billion text messages, right? The rate of change and the advancement comes really quickly and and easily. And some of us are like, whoa, hold on, I can hardly keep up, you know, with what's happening in my life and in the world. You know, in so many ways, change is inevitable, whether it's technology or medical or communication, any of those things. Uh, And sometimes it just seems to happen so quickly, it's hard to keep up. But how do we know there's some things in our life that we wish would change that happen really slowly, right? If you've ever been on a diet or exercise program, right? You're like, why can't this change uh, you know, the same rate as my iPhone, right? Like the update is really slow in coming, right? <laughs> it's hard to keep up. You know, I, I think this idea of consumerism, it's really quick and easy to spend money that we don't have. And it's really slow and burdensome to get out of that, uh, that debt, isn't it? 
It's, it's hard to get out of that hole. You know, it's hard to motivate ourselves to kick that addiction in. And sometimes we go with willpower. We can go for days or weeks or even months. But, but making that change stick is hard. You know, some of the areas of our life, they just grow and change so easily with little effort. And other areas of our life, we just want to see change. It seems to take so long and so much commitment. And so we're looking at the story of uh, Nehemiah. And as I said, we're wrapping up this series today. And, and I love this book because I've been rereading it again and again. You know, I, I've just seen so much leadership insight, uh, so much inspiration in here. And, and I think, like I said in week one, that we look at biblical leaders. You know, we obviously think of Jesus as an incredible leader. And we think of Moses as an example and a lot of life lessons and leadership there. But Nehemiah has so much uh, leadership and life lessons here. But, but what I love about Nehemiah is that he's not a pastor. Uh, he's not a prophet. He's not someone with a position of authority. Uh, he's not someone with a platform, so to speak. Uh, he's just a guy serving in the king's court. In fact, he's one of the lower guys on the totem pole. He is the, the cup bearer. Basically, his job, like I said before, was to sip the king's wine before he did to make sure he doesn't get poisoned, right? So if you think of like the totem pole, like, who do you want to die uh, in case there's, you know, a poisoning uh, attempt, right? You, you, you don't want your buddy. You know, you don't want your high officials. You want the guy that's lowest on the totem, totem pole. So that's Nehemiah. He is the guy that they put out, you know. If anyone's going to die, it's going to be you. And, uh, and that's his position. But what we see here, what we talked about, is that you're always perfectly positioned to be used by God. Wherever you find yourself, you are perfectly positioned. You might not have the job you want. Uh, you might not have like, the life that you thought you would have. But wherever you find yourself, you are perfectly positioned to be used for the call of God on your life. And so wherever we are, all across this room, wherever we find ourselves this week, we are positioned to be used by God. And so he had this, uh, he became this incredible leader, not because he had a position, but because he had a passion. He had a passion, that, and he had this burden that something needed to be done. He, he had a burden that things aren't the way they could be, and he had a vision for what they could be, and God gave him this plan on how to see it transpire. And so we saw in week one that, that Nehemiah answers this burden with a prayer. His prayer is not to wait for someone else to stand up and, and to tackle this burden, but what he says is, God, would you give me the opportunity to be used by you in helping this situation? He was praying for a miracle, but he was also praying for an opportunity. He was saying, God, you do what only you can do and help me do what I can do towards this goal. And so he had this big dream. He felt compelled by this vision to rebuild the broken down city walls of Jerusalem. I won't get into that. And we've, recovered, we've recapped that a few times over the series. But, but what we saw is that this vision was met with incredible opposition. And as the walls went up, sort of the level of criticism, uh, his adversaries came out of the woodwork. And we saw that there were moments of doubt Moments of discouragement as Nehemiah was doing what God had called him to do. I, I'm sure there must have been moments where he doubted he made the right decision. Like, like, what have I gotten myself into? I don't know if I can pull this off. The level of opposition might make me think that maybe I've made the wrong choice. Maybe God didn't call me this, to this after all. But what we saw is that the opposition increased. So did his determination. And brick by brick, the wall was restored. 
So throughout this series, we've been talking about this idea that big things are restored and built brick by brick. Brick by brick, that's how cities are built. You know, we look at our city, we, we know that we need a renovation in our city. Uh, brick by brick, that's how we're going to, to build it. Our churches are built. You know, brick by brick, our generations have gone before us and they have built this church. Bethel Church has an amazing presence and testimony in this community because people have invested brick by brick by brick. And that's how your life is built. We've been talking about this idea of building a life of faith. It's built brick by brick, moment by moment, decision by decision. We're building a life of faith in a city of hope. So last week we left off with this incredible accomplishment. You know, this wall is completed in 52 days. And we saw that as record pace. And we talked about uh, how this was, uh, God had his hands in this. But, but as I looked at this, I was thinking that these walls had laid in ruin for 170 years. The Bible tells that, that uh, the, the, the people of Jerusalem had been in captivity 70 years. And then it's been 100 years since they were first allowed to go back until Nehemiah. So 170 years, the wall's been lying in ruin, and now in only 52 days, they're rebuilt. Now, how many of you ever put uh, off a project at your house thinking that it was going to be a hard project, it was going to take you a long time to get to it, and then you finally get around to it, and you're like, well, that was pretty easy, right? You're like, I should have done that a long time ago, right? And we see that this is like 170 years, they're lying in ruin, desolation, and in 52 days, they are rebuilt. We saw that there's no overt miracles, no divine interventions, but because God was with them and the people were motivated with this vision and the leadership of Nehemiah, God helped them to do it. And so the walls are up, the gates are hung, and you would think that's the end of the story. Mission accomplished, right? Nothing left but the cleanup. And yet as we look at Nehemiah, there's still six chapters left of this story. We're only halfway through the book of Nehemiah. And here's the thing, Nehemiah's burden and vision had never been really about rebuilding walls, right? If you go back to his question in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 2, this is his question. I asked them about the Jews who had returned from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah's burden had never been about brick and mortar, was it? Right? It had never really been about the building project. The broken walls to Nehemiah were really symptomatic of a deeper issue. They were symbolic of something deeper going on. Nehemiah's burden had been about reclaiming the identity of the Jewish people. It had been about rebuilding the soul of the Jewish people. And they'd been broken through captivity, yes. But we see even before they were taken captive that they had been broken through sin and their rejection of God. The walls were just a tangible starting point. They were the felt need. You know, I love that we did the pantry yesterday. I love meeting the felt needs of our community. 
Those felt needs are opportunities for FaceTime. There are opportunities to build a relationship. The Halloween fun fair is just an opportunity. We'll have over 300 families come. And the, the point isn't the fun fair. Uh, the point is let's build community, let's build FaceTime, but we know that there's deeper needs that we need to speak into. And so let's meet the felt need, yes, but let's also come alongside with something deeper. And this is what, where Nehemiah's at. See, although the walls are up, rather than being the end, it's just the start of the renovation of heart and soul that God wants to do in his people. So we have six chapters left, and uh, so we've got we to cover them all today, because I told you this was the last day. So I'll do it in synopsis form, okay? Here's a synopsis. Seeing the wall inspires the people of Jerusalem. Hey, these have been lying for 170. Look what we did in 52 days. How many of you ever got pumped up in a building project before, right? You, you get that one room, that one closet clean, and you're like, this is awesome. And you start going to the next room and the next. Have you ever painted a room in your house or done a renovation, right? If you renovate your bathroom, well, how many know then your kitchen looks dated, right? So then you gotta do your kit and then your master bedroom, right? It's like the more you go, it's like this onward. So these people are, look what we did in 52 days. Let's keep going. Let's keep tackling these neglected areas of our lives. And, and so they begin to make progress. And what they do is they wanna begin with making things right with God. Just days after the wall is done and the dust is settled in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse one, it says this. All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. The book of the law of Moses is what we would know as the Pentateuch. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in our Bibles, the first five books. And they say, would you bring out the book of the law of Moses? Now we get this sense that it's been a long time since anyone's ever read these books. It's like, you get the sense that they're pulling them off the shelf and dusting them off like with a cloud of dust because what it says here is that the Levites and the leaders have to come alongside the people and explain to them what they're hearing. Ezra begins to read out the book of the law and it's almost like they would read a section and then they would kind of get in their small groups and talk about it, right? We do that every, every week if you're in a, in a life group, right? We read, we talk on Sunday and then we get together and so we see these Levites and leaders needing to explain what's going on. The people, and as they begin to hear this message, remember this message in, uh, through Moses had been uh, expressed to them that like, you need to make this central to your life. Remember, he said, they like, bind it to your heads and tie it to your arms, explain it to your kids and you're coming and going. That's what the Pentateuch says to do. And yet we see here that the people are so unfamiliar with the words of the Lord that were given to Moses that they need explanation. They had allowed themselves to drift so badly. How many know that you don't really have to try very hard to drift? Drift just happens. Drift happens without you trying. Drift happens when you don't try. We all naturally drift. Right? And if we want to get close to God uh, without, without intention, we drift. And that's what these people had done. They had just drifted. How many know if you want to stay anchored, it takes some intentionality to be anchored? And so they weren't anchored in the word of God. They were drifting. I wonder how many times we forget the word of God as a starting point and the foundation for a solid life that God intends for us. 
right? How much do we spend time reading business reports and, and thinking about education systems, technology trends, you know, what's the psychology of the day? What are social media influencers, you know, suggesting that we do? And we, we're spending so much time in all of these things and we forget that the starting point for life is in the words of the one who gives us life, right? We need to make the word of God a priority in our life. Well, these people are feeling spiritually lost and disoriented. They're in despair. Like I said, the walls that were broken down were just symbolic of what was really going on in their hearts and in their spirits. And so they decide that we need to get back to the word of God. And so they take time to listen again for the voice of the one who was looking for them. When I was a kid, I, I, you know those stories where you're like, I don't remember if I remember this or I just remember the story that my family told about this for years to come, right? I have one of those memories of, of being camping. And in Ontario, we have a great big provincial park called Algonquin Park. And it's one of those parks where, you know when you go out at night and there's no moon and it's like dark, right? It's so dark that you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Have you ever been camping on a night like that? Well, when we were kids, uh, we, we used to have this tent trailer and uh, the story goes, at least the way my dad tells it, is that he forgot to, to tie up the end of the tent trail. You know, they popped out the sides and the beds pop out and he forgot to tie it. So in the middle of the night, about five or six years old, I rolled out of bed and I rolled through the end of the bed and I fell underneath the trailer in the darkness. On one of those nights that you can't see the, your hand in front of your face. Now my dad wears glasses. And so you can imagine, kind of like the night, where's my glasses, right? Whether he's woken up in this, this like panic, this screaming, what's under, you know, ah, you know, you just know I'm being attacked by a bear or what, right? And he's trying to find, so he opens the door and he can't see me. And he's just like, Jeremy, come to my voice. Come to my voice, right? And it's almost what God is doing with us many times. God is looking for us, the Bible says, and he's saying, come to my voice. Come to my voice. Come out of your darkness. Come out of despair. Come to my voice. That's what God is doing for us. And so the people, they get serious about this. They, they hear the reading of the word. Uh, verse 13 says that the, the family leaders get together. And they, hey, let's go over that again in deeper detail. And so they get together again, and they're looking at, over the scriptures and recognizing all the places where they failed to obey God's leading in their lives. And then again, Two weeks later, they gather everyone together in the city square. And this time it says they stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, for three hours, they stood and listened as the word of God was read to them. And then for another three hours, it says that they spent time repenting of their sin and worshiping God. How many are ready for a six-hour worship service this morning? Right? Woohoo! Yeah, let's do it. So they're standing here and they're worshiping God. And, and, and we see through chapters 9 and 10 that there's three big areas that stood out to them where they had failed uh, to, to recognize God and honor him in their life. The first one is that they had neglected the temple. They neglected the temple. You've got to understand in the Old Testament, you know, uh, their understanding is the temple is the dwelling place of God and the Holy of Holies. The temple is the place where heaven meets earth. Right? It's different for us, as we know, as the Holy Spirit has come, that we now are the temples and that the Holy Spirit indwells us. But in Old Testament understanding, the temple is the dwelling place of God. You go to the temple to meet with God. It's where heaven meets earth. It's the intersection of where God and men meet together. But as they go over this, they, they say, you know, they begin to recognize that they 
uh, you know, Pastor Ralph talked about the principle of tithes and offerings. That is a principle that God had given them uh, to fund the work of the ministry and to fund the temple uh, at that time. It says that they had neglected that. Uh, they, and because of that, all the temple workers, the Levites, had all gone out to the fields to make a living. Uh, we see here that they, provide, they failed to provide for the work of God. Really what they're saying is that they've moved God to the back burner of their life. This isn't important to us anymore. We're going to move it back to the back burner of our life. God is, we're no longer interested in meeting with God in the temple. Second thing they, they notice is that we neglected the Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath is a principle that we see all through scripture that it was originated with God himself. God created the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. And we see that God has this principle of Sabbath through scripture. 172 mentions of Sabbath through scripture. Really, the day is a day of rest and a day to worship the Lord. A day set apart from all the other the grinding and, and you know, all the work that we're, all the striving. It's a day to worship God, to rest. And, and, and what we see here is that these people had turned it into a day like any other. It was a day for buying and selling. The markets were open. And really what that was symbolizing was that the, they were becoming self-sufficient. They were relying on themselves. We're, we're independent. We're commercialism. We're materialism-based. God, we don't even have time to focus on you anymore because we are just doing business uh, uh, just like any other day. They neglected the Sabbath. And then the third thing we see that they recognize is that they had uh, begun to participate in mixed marriages. Now, mixed marriages here, uh, he's not talking about the, the principle of, of being interracial, Although that was part of it, but what was really the, the problem of it wasn't being interracial, but it was being um, uh, uh, married to unbelievers, to outside influences, to other tribes and nations. And the problem with that really is that they were allowing the pagan religions and worship practices to influence their family, to influence their culture, turning them from God. Instead of just neglecting God, it's the, they say in these chapters that they even begun to erase God from their family history, from their family memory. Their children didn't know the culture and the history and the teaching or even the language of the children of God. And so they begin to recognize we've really drifted from what God has called us to. These broken down walls are just symbolic of something else deeper in our hearts. We have this broken down city in our hearts. And so as they get into scripture, they recognize that not only is a pattern for their life, but it's been a pattern of their history. Nehemiah 9.16 says, our ancestors were proud and stubborn. They paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and they appointed a leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. So the deeper and deeper they got in the word of God, the, the closer they got to the perfection of God, it's like the more and more they saw the imperfection and they saw the sinfulness of their own life. And the Bible says they began to mourn, they began to weep. How, how could we have come this far from the God who loves us, who cares for us? And uh, we come to this place of repentance. We, repentance, so it's a funny word, isn't it? It can stir up mixed feelings in some of us, right? 
You know, for some of us, we think of that man standing on the street corner holding the sign, you know, repent for the end is near, right? Prepare to meet your God, right? Maybe that megaphone, the turn or burn, you know, that's the message of repentance that some of us have been presented with. In some ways, it can feel like a threat, right? Like, right, get right with God or you're going to feel his wrath. And the idea is that God's about to unleash punishment, so we better get on his good side before he does, right? We think of this angry God, this punitive God, who's about to pour out wrath and justice, and so we better get on his good side, get in his good books before he does. But the, the problem with that type of vision, in a way, is that it's, it projects this angry God. It projects this God who is just looking to strike us down in our weakness, in our sin. And, and, and it can come with this idea of repentance that I need to be remorseful. And the way I re show remorse is to be continuously uh, mourning my failure and my shortcoming. And so the life that I live is one of discouragement, of mourning, mourning my sin, mourning my failure. Well, the juxtaposition to that is that some people will say, well, that's extreme and misguided. And, you know, instead of being fixated on God's wrath, we should be fixated on God's kindness, his love, and his forgiveness, right? We should be fixing on how good God is rather than how sinful we are. And as we, as we look at that, that can bring the extreme of almost not needing repentance at all. You know, it's like God loves us, so we're all good, right? This idea that we're all good because God loves us all. But the problem is that repentance is not about being fixated on our sin. And it's not about being fixated on God's goodness to the, um, to the neglect of repentance. Neglect, repentance is essential to Jesus' message. Jesus began his ministry with a call to repentance. And John 1.14 says that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. This isn't doom and gloom. This isn't get right before God gets even with us. This is God has good news for us. Let's come and be a part of it. Repentance is central to what it means to be a, di a disciple. His purpose isn't perpetual remorse. And his purpose isn't just to escape judgment, to get on good side. His purpose is to bring us close to God and discover his purpose for our lives. So we regret the wasted days, yes, but we also cherish the new ones that God gives us with him. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not our fear of punishment. Romans tells us that. Well, this morning you've been sitting for a while. It says that the people stood for six hours for the reading of God's word. I, I thought maybe we could read a little bit through uh, Nehemiah 9 together. And, and would you stand with me for the reading of God's word today? And let's do that. Let's participate together. Nehemiah chapter 9. And uh, verse 17, let's read this one together. Let's read verse 17 together on the count of three. You ready? And then I'll read the rest after that. One, two, three. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry, and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. That's what they're talking about, thinking about their ancestors. Now let's read verse 27. Verse 27. 
I'll read it. You read along with me. But in their time of trouble, they cried to you, and you heard them from heaven. In your great mercy, you sent them liberators who rescued them from their enemies. But as soon as they were at peace, your people again committed evil in your sight. And once more, you let their enemies conquer them. Yet whenever your people turned and cried to you again for help, you listened once more from heaven. In your wonderful mercy, you rescued them many times. You, want, you warned them to return to your law, but they became proud and obstinate and disobeyed your commands. They did not follow your regulations by which people will find life if only they obey. They stubbornly turned their backs on you and refused to listen. And in your love, you were patient with them for many years. You sent your spirit who warned them through the prophets, but still they wouldn't listen. So once again, you allowed the people of the land to conquer them. But in your great mercy, you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. You can be seated this morning. See, having recounted the history of their people and their cycle of sin and the cycle of their autonomy, and they talked about God's continued patience and kindness in dealing with them, the people that Nehemiah has a burden to, they come to this recognition. They come to this recognition that they too are in the same place as the previous generations before them. It wasn't just the broken down wall, but the broken relationship with God that needed their attention. This stood out to me, Nehemiah 9.36. If you have your Bibles, put a star beside it. It says this. So now today, we are slaves in the land of plenty that you gave our ancestors for their enjoyment. We are slaves here in this good land. I read that this week and that just arrested me. We're slaves in the land of plenty. Just let that sit with you for a minute. The land that God gave us for our enjoyment and we are slaves in this place. I wrote this in my journal this week. It says, what was meant to bless me has become the boss of me. How do we know that God wants to bless us? He wants us to, to have independent security. He like, like some of us, like if we're talking real life right now, like, like debt is the boss of us, right? Debt is the boss of us. But it was meant to be a blessing to us, but it's become the boss of us. Sometimes our leisure and our entertainment, it rules our, it rules our life to the point of, of what I'm thinking about is how can I be comfortable? How can I entertain myself? What can I do for me? to the exclusion of how am I helping others? How am I investing in the kingdom of God? Sometimes our business, our job becomes the boss of us, right? What is meant to be a blessing has become the boss of me. I, I was thinking today the idea of family. Do you know a family can be an idol? Family can be an idol. I'm, I'm saying we gotta honor family. We gotta look after our family. But we're in a generation right now where some of us parents look after our kids in a, a way that's almost idolatrous, right? And say so we lift them up at the expense of everything else. We lift them up at the expense of, you know how why the number one age bracket for divorce, right? Is after the kids move out. Why is that? Because we idolatrize our kids so much that we don't even know our spouse anymore. Right? And so when the kids go out, we get divorced because we don't even know each other. Right? That's a problem with our society. 
You know, we look at, at the way we, we want everything for our kids. You know, I've met people, and they're like, I'm sorry, Pastor, I, <laughs> I haven't been to church. We had a baby. Well, the baby's three years old now, and you still haven't been to church, right? I'm like, I'm just saying, right? Like, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to make family, you know, getting to church is hard. I remember Mondays were miserable at the Bates house, right? Because we took our kids to church and they would miss nap time. And that made it miserable for everybody on Mondays. But we thought it was more important for our kids to have, even at that young age, that habit of going to church and making church a priority in our household. How many know that if you don't take your kids to church when they're kids, they're not gonna go when they're teenagers, right? It doesn't get any easier, it only gets harder, right? And so these people are in this place and they haven't prioritized God in their life. They become slaves in the land of plenty. Here's a message that we get from Nehemiah though. That God always does his part. God is always faithful. God in his kindness and love always does his part. And the question is, will we do ours? And so in light of this revelation, the people are faced with the decision how will they respond? Chapter 10, we see brick by brick. They've been building lives. They've been putting reforms into place. And, and they, they, they make this declaration. They, the, they respond by assuming responsibility. Chapter 9, verse 38. And then again in 1039, it says, The people responded, in view of this, we're making a solemn promise and putting it in writing. We promise together not to neglect the temple of our God. Really, they're saying making temple, making God and the worship of God central to our lives. You know, without taking responsibility, someone else is always running your life. For a hundred years, these people have been living in this place with their walls broken down and desolation, but really in their hearts, the walls broken down, the worship of God broken down, and they were just waiting for someone to come along and inspire them that there's something more for us. There's something more to this life, something more that God's calling us to. And as Nehemiah came, he rallied them not around just rebuilding a wall, but rebuilding this place of God and this worship of God central to their life. You know, irresponsibility will always find an excuse. You know, well, I would if I could. Or, you know, see what happened to me is this. Or, or, or the reason that I can't is that. But responsibility finds a way. As they gather around this, you know what? We gotta be responsible for the place that we're, we can't blame our ancestors anymore. We can't blame our neighbors. We gotta take responsibility for our relationship with God. Winston Churchill said the price of greatness is responsibility, right? If you want a great life, you need to take responsibility. If you want a great marriage, you gotta take responsibility. If you want a great church, you gotta take responsibility, Someone said to me this week, they're like, hey, uh, like your church. And I was like, isn't it our church? Like, isn't it your church too, right? It was just the way they phrased it is, oh, you guys at the church. I'm like, no, it's us. It's we. We all have responsibility. It's our church. It's our community. It's our city. And we're saying, God, you do what only you can do, but help me do what I can do to bring your, your kingdom to this city. I mean, that responsibility is a blessing. It's not a burden, right? Taking responsibility is not, uh, I'm running low on time. I gotta keep going. I was gonna tell you a story, but I'll tell you super quick. Okay, when I was, (laughs) we're here for six hours, I know. But when I was a youth pastor, 
I had a busy schedule. I, you know, I had youth retreats. I would preach to the youth every week. And every once in a while, my pastor would go, Jeremy, I want you to preach on Sunday. And every time he did, I'd go, ah. Because I had a full schedule. That meant, like, I had to put something else in my schedule. And so I did this a few times. And my pastor, he called me on. He said, every time I give you the opportunity to preach on Sunday, this is your response. Ah. I said, oh, shoot, really? He said, yeah. He goes, Preaching to the people of God is a, uh, is a blessing. It's an opportunity. What a privilege to declare the word of God to people. When I give you this privilege to speak into the life of your people, I don't want to hear, ah. I want to hear, yes. I get a part to be, a, you know what I'm saying? Right? Responsibility is a blessing, right? When you had a baby and they put it in your arms at the hospital, you didn't go, ah. <laughs> you went, Yes. I get the responsibility, right? I'm not going to take this and give it to you and be like, hey, can you look after this for like 12 or 13 years for me, right? <laughs> give it back, right? You get the blessing. We've inherited Bethel Church 97 years young. What a great church that we have, eh? And some of you have been on that journey for a long time. And you've been investing and you've taken ownership. Some of us are new to this church and, and maybe you're just finding your fit in our faith community. But God's given us the responsibility and the opportunity to say, what do you want to do in our church and through our church? It's not like, ah, that's such a burden. It's like, yes, God, we get to be a part of something that you're doing here in our community. What an amazing legacy we get to be a part of, to assume responsibility for our church and our community. Well, that sounds awesome. I hope you're inspired by that. 12 years, Nehemiah, remember he asked the king, can I go to Jerusalem for a little while? Well, 12 years, we find out that he's there. It wasn't just 52 days to build the wall, but it was 12 years to rebuild the, the kingdom and the infrastructure and, and, the, and the worship of God. And, and so Nehemiah says in chapter 13 that he goes back to Babylon. He goes back to the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar, or to uh, Artaxerxes, and, and he goes back and he's there for a while. And, and at some point he takes a vacation, he goes back to Jerusalem. I don't, it doesn't say how long later, but he gets back and he finds that all the people have returned to their old ways. It's like a devastating story. Like, it's been going so well up until this point. And Nehemiah comes back. Have you ever seen like those, like, those renovation shows where like, they come in and they change everything and then like, after they leave, the people change it back. Like, we liked it the old way better, right? The people drift and they compromise. They return to their old ways. This was crazy to me. Remember Tobiah, the sand ballot and Tobiah, like, the people who were mocking him in chapter two and three? It says that he comes back and finds out that, that Tobiah has been given like a locker storage room in the temple. Like they're not even using it anymore that they've actually allowed him to move stuff into the temple. And Nehemiah gets there. like, what are you guys doing? He throws all his like storage locker out onto the street. He says, like, what? it's crazy. Read Nehemiah 13 this afternoon. It's awesome. But they had returned again to the fields, the, the leaders of the temple, because the temple had been neglected. The people returned to their old ways. See, see rebuilding the exterior without renovating the interior Right? Modifying our behaviors without really transforming our beliefs. This will lead things to crumble again. Right? It's not a cosmetic facelift, but a renovation of heart and soul that God wants to do in his people. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. and As I do, I'm going to invite you to stand across this room again. Because what we see in Nehemiah is that while the change was temporary, this is uh, uh, symbolic of the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament is like, yes, change your ways, you know, change your behaviors, conform to this way of living. And yet what we see here is that it falls short. Something needs to be done. And we see in the New Testament that Jesus comes, the new and greater Nehemiah. See, like Nehemiah, Jesus too leaves the throne room of heaven. He leaves the throne of the king's court and he comes from his place of privilege and enters the broken city of men. See, in the New Testament, Jesus also wept over the brokenness of Jerusalem hundreds of years later, but that's where the parallels fall short. Because while Nehemiah led the people in a building program, Jesus offers the renovation of our hearts. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus gave his life so that we can have forgiveness of our past, yes, but that we can also have a transformation of our mind and our soul and our spirit. Jesus is the new, the true and greater Nehemiah. And then Jesus, it says, went back to the throne room of heaven like Nehemiah did. And now we find ourselves in this place of awaiting the day he returns. But the question for us is, will we be found drifting and conforming like the people of Judah? Or will we, will we be found faithfully waiting, true to God's word with his word in our hearts? This is what we're awaiting. Revelations chapter 21, verse two says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. See, this isn't just about escaping God's wrath. This is about saying, God, I'm looking forward to your return. I'm looking forward to this life with you. I'm looking forward to the fulfillment and the fullness of what you created me for. Church, I wonder this morning if we could take a moment just to praise God like the people did. Repenting of their sin, yes, but more like focused on the goodness and the blessing of God who has been faithful, who has been true, who has been kind, and has been loving. Let's, let's take a moment right now and just express our gratitude to the Lord this morning. Can we do that together? All across this room, let's lift up our voice. Maybe you're here, you just want to raise your hands and surrender, raise your hands and praise. Just begin to declare, God, I thank you for your faithfulness. God, I just thank you for your long-suffering, God, and in my failure, God, and in my weakness, Lord, that you continue to be faithful. Let's worship Jesus together for a moment. Hallelujah, God. Jesus, we just thank you. God, that you're the true and better Nehemiah, that you stepped out of the throne room, left your place of privilege, and you came not just to lead us in rebuilding cities, but you came and lead us in renovating our lives brick by brick, building a life of faith and a city of hope. God, I pray as we wrap up this series, Lord Jesus, that we would be compelled to live for something bigger than ourselves, bigger than the day-to-day grind, bigger than our pleasure and our entertainment and enjoyment. God, I pray that you would give us a vision for your kingdom, or your kingdom in our life, that our life would be centered around worshiping you, and our families would be centered around worshiping you, that our communities would begin to have the knowledge of you because of our presence in it. God, give us dreams and visions 
for how to reach our community, those tangible ways, the walls that need to be rebuilt. And I pray that those walls, Lord, would lead to inspiring people, that there's other issues that we can tackle together, the renovation of our hearts. We just thank you, Jesus, for your long suffering and patience towards us. Help us not to drift. Help us not to grow weary in doing good. Help us not to allow distraction or discouragement to keep us from your plans and purposes for our life. I pray, Jesus. I pray, Jesus, for that burden, that burden that you have, that we would cry over the things you cry over, or that we would have that opportunity to say, God, you do your part. Help me to do mine. Don't let us be slaves in the land of plenty, but Lord, let us be free to enjoy the blessing of all that you've given to us.